Good morning. It is sure wonderful to be together. We're in our uh, last week of the series on community life, and our, our key text is in First Peter, but we actually have a little bit of groundwork to lay before we get there. So I want you all to be opening your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. That's where we're going to start, and I want you to open it up and keep that in front of you while we are talking. While you're kind of getting there, I want to see if you can multitask, um, a little fill in the blank. The stars at night are big and bright. Yeah, y'all, everyone swells up with a little pride. They did that in early service, too. It was like deep in the heart of Texas. You know, I never knew how true that was until I was in high school, and I got to take this uh, special trip to the Big Bend area. We actually went to dig up some dinosaur bones, which is a story for another time. Um, but I, I'll never forget one of the first things I noticed as the sun went down, way out there in the Big Bend, West Texas area, what the stars looked like. Man, I, I tell you what, since then we, we took the youth group on a, a trip one time to the, to the Davis Mountains, um, and, and I got to see it there. The McDonald Observatory is, is in that part of the world, and they, they chose it pretty deliberately because of the dark skies. Um, Jim, you can go ahead and throw that slide up there, give you something to look at while I'm talking about this. Um, I, I'm telling y'all, I've just, I've just never, seen, never seen stars like I've seen out in West Texas. The McDonald Observatory helped establish an international dark sky reserve in the Big Bend region. And so that's part of the reason that everything is so beautiful down there. They have about a 10 million acre spread of land where they've passed some regulations and they're very careful about the amount of light pollution that they allow. And so obviously no one really wants to live there anyway because it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, but on top of that, were you to choose to live there, they would have rules about what you did with lights at night. And the reason is to preserve this magnificent, magnificent gift we have. The ability to look up into the sky and see stars like we can't see anywhere else. And we've kind of adapted, each of us, to this existence over here where the stars are still there, but we don't see them as much as we normally would. So I can go out at night and I can pick out a few stars from our backyard here in Abilene, but I really can't see that many. Depending on what town or city you might live in, um, light pollution has a pretty big impact on what you're able to see. Now, the stars are still there. These stars, the stars that you can see in West Texas in this international um, dark sky reserve, they're still there whether we can see them or not. We've just lived in a place and have filled it with things that have made it difficult for us to look up and see them. In fact, I would say have made it impossible for us to look up and see them in the same fashion that we can if we're out in West Texas. You know, we have a phenomenal propensity to shield ourselves, to kind of cut ourselves off from these ever-present realities around us. Yeah, I think of some different examples. You know, we can be in the middle of a drought 
But if you can uh, turn on that faucet, you don't worry about it too much when you brush your teeth, right? Because you're not sitting there watching the lake levels falling. Or when it's hot like it is on days like today, we go into our comfortable air-conditioned homes and we set the thermostat. When it's dark outside, we turn on the lights. When it's cold, we turn the heat on with the flip of a switch. When we get hungry, we go to the refrigerator and in there we find these packaged food and vegetables and meat that are ready for us to consume. Um, in a lot of ways, we've isolated uh, ourselves from the realities around us, what's, what's surrounding us and, and, and required for those things to happen. You know, I was uh, told him in early service, it's, it's kind of funny, we live in a house that was built in 1993. Many of you may know Buddy and Elizabeth Doolin. They bought this house in 1998. They were the second owners. So um, it was quite a few years ago when they moved in, and we purchased it a few years ago from Elizabeth. Um, and we did a little bit of remodel, and we put, replaced the floors and painted the walls. But the ceilings, I mean, ceilings are kind of ceilings, so you don't paint those, right? So we just ignored the ceilings and decided it was just fine. Well, it wasn't, I don't know, a few months after we um, moved in that one night I was tucking Brooklyn to bed and she was staying in a, her bedroom is the one that used to be the office for Buddy and Elizabeth and I was tucking her in bed and I looked up on the ceiling and lo and behold there was glow-in-the-dark stars stuck all over the roof of her bedroom I guarantee you Buddy and Elizabeth did not put glow-in-the-dark stars in their office so we're sitting there staring at these they, I'm sure they didn't even know that they were there the 25-year-old the glow-in-the-dark stars on the roof of Brooklyn's bedroom. And so, I mean, most of them has survived the kids. Braxton got in trouble one time for pulling a few of them off. But the rest of them are still there, and it's kind of a fun thing at night to sit there and look at the glow-in-the-dark stars. They're nothing like this, that's for sure. You know, I feel like often we uh, go inside and somehow we become okay with a cheap replacement for reality. We become okay with something far less glorious and begin to look at it with wonder as if it was something pretty mighty and pretty special. In fact, we live in a world, uh, in a culture that is in the midst of doing this exact same thing. The picture is painted in Romans chapter 1. I want to read verses 18 through 23. I think this is what we see happening around us. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his Invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You know, we can certainly look at creation around us, and there are some things that are plainly evident. 
I mean, I look out and see there's order all around us. The laws of physics and science, the, the laws of nature that we've discovered um, point us to some sort of a design. There's creativity that abounds. We connect with and resonate with the idea of beauty. We see morality as a, as a universal truth that people hold to. There are so many plain things that point us to the fact that there has to be something bigger out there. And that's really what Paul is zeroing in on here. He's saying, you see all of these little pieces of evidence around you. They're clearly there. They've been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. And when you notice and see those things, it points you somewhere. It points you to this eternal power, this divine nature, these these invisible attributes. It, It points you to these things that are undoubtedly there. Paul is concerned not as much with the evidence, but where the evidence points. And he's saying there are some inescapable realities that if you just observe the world around you that you cannot get away from. But here's the problem with the world. Paul says that they knew, not that they know, that they knew. It was past tense. They knew these things. The knowledge had left them. And instead they had turned away. He uses the phrase darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And over time, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the realities around them that were evident. They exchanged those for things lesser than images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, the text tells us. In other words, Paul is saying it is evident, it is obvious when you just go outside and look that there is something more. So why do we exalt these lesser things to this higher position that they don't deserve? And it's because our hearts have become darkened. In other words, we reach a point that it's not that we don't see, it's we reach a point that we can't see. You see, you can't see the stars if you lock yourself in your bedroom. The stars aren't gone, they didn't go away but you can't see them the same way. It's possible for you to go outside and look. It's possible for you to drive to West Texas and get a better look, but you can rest assured that you will not see them from where you are at if you stay in your bedroom. It's possible, I believe, to grow up inside and never realize that they are there, to grow up in the city and not know what sort of glorious realities um, are, are right there behind the light that we're washing it out. It's possible also to spend so much time inside that you forget And I think that it's important for us to understand this concept of darkening, of growing futile in our thinking. This concept is important because I believe it changes your perspective on how you see the world. You see, often we look out and we see those who have turned away from the truth and we're pretty harsh and we're pretty judgmental because we feel like there's a willful rejection. And, And... to be honest, at some point, I think, in most people's decision-making, there, there is. There is a willful rejection. But here's the reality. The state that the culture is in around us has become dark and such that it's not that they are looking away. It's that they cannot see. The stars are there, but they can't see them because of where they live and what they're surrounded by. Now, that doesn't remove guilt from those who are unable to see. But we have to recognize where the state of rejection, where the result of turning away from God leads people. 
leads groups of people, leads cultures to, and it's a darkened place where they no longer see or are able to. We live in a culture just like Paul that's inundated with those who reject these basic self-evident truths about God that can be seen with simple observation. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Church, this is the culture we live in, a culture that's exchanged the immortal glory around us for something far less glorious, for these mortal images traded stars in the sky for stickers on a ceiling. And we proclaim this as wise, and we look out and we say, these images are glorious. Look at these wonderful things that we have to look at, and we don't realize that we've locked ourselves in our homes, and the things that we are calling wonderful are the cabinetry and the, the decorations and the stars that we stuck on the ceiling are all creations of man, and they may be really cool, and they may be really neat to look at, but we have traded something far less valuable for something of infinite value. These things are dependent. They're dependent on the men who made them and dependent on the men who worship them. They are dependent on a creator, just like me and just like you. And when we acknowledge that reality, it can be scary and costly and difficult because if there's something bigger than us, it requires that we give honor and thanks to something outside of ourselves. And so the easiest response that we see our culture running to is to draw the curtains and keep the light out and fabricate a universe around ourselves which we are comfortable and to call that good. And when you are in the midst of it, it can seem natural and normal. So my question is this, what turns the lights back on when darkness prevails? And to answer this, we turn to the counterexample presented in Scripture. God's people. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start with verses 1 through 6. Paul writes this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. And look at verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So how does Paul claim that God was revealed to him here? He said that God spoke into his heart. He did it through the face of Jesus Christ. And this isn't a trite oversimplification of theology. Christ is everything for this belief system. He's the central element, the only one that matters. Everything points to him and exudes from him and operates through him. Christ is everything. 
I think it's important for us to recognize that were it not for Christ, not a single one of us sitting here would be living in light. We would be living in darkness. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, the light switch was off for every single one of you and the sky was dimmed and the stars were unviewable were it not for Christ. The arrival of Jesus in this landscape of a, of a sinful culture is as much a miracle as the appearance of light when there was none. And God spoke it into existence just like he provided Jesus on this terrain of darkness. And this newness introduced to creation, it, it never before existed. He described it as light. It's contrast with the darkness of Romans. And it's not just light, it's the light that he displays. It's the light that he turns on. He is the one that turns on the switch in the mind of these believers. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here's my next question. Is this a one-time event? Was this something that happened back then like the creation day? And now we've moved away from it and God operates differently? Or is this something that happens over and over again in the life of every believer? As I've read this passage, I, I, I feel like it would be really comforting to read ourselves into the passage, to view ourselves as God working this way, and one day he steps into your heart, and he flips on the switch, and then you have seen the light, but if I'm being really honest, I don't think that's what Paul was doing here. I think Paul was making an argument for what had happened to him. He was making an argument for the special position that these first apostles had in this place of ministry. This is about the supernatural revelation of God's glory in the lives of these first ministers. In other words, God showed up and he revealed something to them. In this dark world, God flipped on the light switch and he says, I want to show you something in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you my glory. And then as we move through the rest of the passage, we see what Paul and these other ministers decided to do with it. Let's continue reading in verse 7. Paul says, but, but we have this treasure in, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. He's clear of several things in this passage. First of all, the power doesn't come through them. They are just jars of clay, he says. We don't have anything to do with these stars that shine in the sky. That's not our glory. We're just, we're just vessels that deliver the news. 
He talks about how their affliction puts on display the life of Jesus. So I presume that he's talking about how they graciously accept the suffering. He, they're enduring suffering as Christ did. And suffering has always been a, a key that displays this grace and mercy to the world in a powerful way. And just like Jesus' suffering and death brought eternal life to creation, through their suffering, eternal life had been brought to these believers. And then in verse 15, there's this powerful statement made. He says, it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it would increase thanksgiving to the glory of what? The glory of God. So let's take a step back and ask ourselves what he's saying. He's saying the glory of, of God was revealed to us by God through Jesus. He says, and now we are living in a way so that you would see it too. And the more people who see it, the more glory God gets. That's the argument Paul's tracing through. So, so yes, the world is broken and dark. And yes, there are people living in ways that ignore obvious realities around them. But God started a movement to bring light back in a world of darkness the world is not crumbling and falling apart. Things are not collapsing. God has revealed his glory so that the light switch could be turned back on. And his plan began with the apostles. They were the first one who took these first group of believers and connected them with the truth. But we see that his plan continues through you. Now we get to our key text. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you... But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Look at verse 9. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does it mean to be a royal priesthood? I mean, I think the text explains some of that for us. It says this royal priesthood does something. You proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Think of the imagery that he was invoking here, the idea of a priest. What did a priest do? A priest stood there in the temple, and they interceded for the people in a way that they could not. They connected them to God in the way that they could not do for themselves. A couple of weeks ago on Father's Day, we talked about how fathers have an intercessory role for their children they provide a connection point at times when they can't provide it on their own and i'm here telling you this morning that each and every one of you have been selected as a royal priesthood to connect this darkened culture with god in a way that they simply cannot and will not do on their own you are a major connecting point between those who are in the dark and the light of god that awaits them 
As a royal priesthood, you're calling people to come out of their room and stop looking at the stick-on stars on the ceiling and see what's out there in West Texas, those stars that shine big and bright. You've been made a people set apart and given the task of proclaiming the realities of God to a world who cannot see him. You are a royal priesthood. The text goes on, you once were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you didn't belong, but now you do. Once you didn't have this, but now you do. Once you lived without hope, but now you do. And now that you've seen it, now that you live in the light, now that you've been called out of darkness, you've been tasked with the job of proclaiming things that others cannot see, things that they will not see, because you have seen, and it is glorious. Paul put it like this in Romans 10, 14. He said, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now you read that verse and you think of me. I'm up here preaching, but I don't think it's what it's talking about at all. Connect it with all of these things that we're talking about. We're talking about proclaiming his excellencies to the world around us. We're talking about every single one of you going out in your everyday lives and glorifying God to those around you in a way that helps them see things that they cannot see for themselves. God has in the past directly revealed his light to some. He did that with the apostles. But the means he has ordained to shine his light and reveal his glory in this day and age are his people, his chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, the people he possesses, the saved. That's us. We certainly have a lot of very important inward functions. We've talked about all of those, the importance of living as a community. I mean, that means we spend time together, we share together, we learn together, we grow together, we endure together. But all of these, if you've been following along and listening closely, I've I've scattered breadcrumbs out, I've, I've pointed you to this fact that all of these, while they may be wonderful for you, at the end of the day, their design is really meant to turn the light switch on in a dark culture and point them towards God. When we live the way that we were designed, when we live in this community, it equips us together as a community to be his key glorifiers. Together we glorify God. As God's people, together we serve in a priestly capacity for the entire world. They see things they would not otherwise see because of us, because of the words that we use, the lives that we live, and the community that we share. We are the dark sky reserve. We are the place where you go to pull the telescopes out. Okay? We are the, the crazy people who live in West Texas and say, hey, come see this and look at the sky. It's, it's amazing. There's awesome things up there. Just, just the other day, we had a going away party for our interns, and we went to Sonic, and every, all the kids had gotten drinks, and so we were sitting there hanging out, and I heard all the kids start squealing because a bee had flown up. And, and, and that's a pretty normal reaction. A lot of people are scared of bees, but I actually have kept bees, and, and I kind of have a little bit of a soft spot for them, and it just really irks me when a bee gets smashed. So I stood up, and I was going to save the bee. You know, one bee at a time, we're going to save the planet. I know it's silly, but that's how I feel. Well, by the time I got over there, 
I thought Mally Parks was going to beat me up. Because you know what she was doing? She was saving that bee, and she thought I was coming to smash the bee. Why was, why was Mally protecting the bee? Because they have bees, and she's seen. And once you've seen the amazing creatures that they are, uh, you can never see things differently. In fact, if you want to get stuck, ask someone who has bees about bees. Because there's a lot to tell you, and, and, and we will kidnap you for a long time. Now, I'm not a very good beekeeper. Mine usually die, and so I need to put a little more effort into that. But here's the bottom line. It's a glorious, amazing world that, that so many people <clears throat> excuse me, haven't seen and misunderstand. But once you've seen it and know, you can't help but, but preach on their behalf. You can't help but operate in a priestly role on behalf of the bees because I want you to understand how amazing they are and how important they are, and it's not at all like you think it is. That's how we should be operating every day in the world. We proclaim God with how we live, and we proclaim God in what we teach and when we're together and sharing and learning and growing and enduring together, the end result is that we glorify God. So the outside world looks at us and they see that we are living in community in this world of brokenness. And they're like, huh, what's going on there? And the outside world sees us caring for one another. And it, and it doesn't make sense the way that we take care of one another. And they're like, man, that's, that's weird. What's What's happening there? And the outside world sees us studying and, and growing and maturing together and we're moving towards things that matter and away from things that don't. And there's this richness of existence in that way. And they look and they're like, huh, what's going on there? And the outside world then sees us enduring pain with, with grace. In fact, we invite it in. We'll endure the pain of someone else for their good. We forgive and we love people no matter what. And they look at this community and they, they see the way that we interact and they say, huh, what's going on there? And they, and they start to search and they start to look for a reason. And as they follow it, the only place they can land is on God. That's where their gaze lands. That's the end result of their searching. You see, the inside affects the outside, and when we follow God's design, all paths lead back to him, and it changes the world. Our chief purpose as God's people is to bring glory to him. There's great benefits for us individually as we learn to live in community. But at the end of the day, that's not what it's about. What it's about is beckoning people outside so that they would leave the darkness and be able to look up into the sky and see the ever-present, glorious realities around them. We're not God. We didn't put those realities in place. We don't have anything to do with the fact that they're there, but we do have a role in proclaiming that they are. And we do have a role in helping people see things that they will not see on their own. May we be constantly looking through our life and our words and beckoning people to come outside and look at the stars, to see these glorious realities around us. I hope that you will be a people that in your everyday life are out there calling to those around you, have you seen this? And look over here, and you're not going to believe this, and wait till you see what it looks like over here, because this, this is so good 
This is so amazing, and it's so beautiful. And I believe as we point and we point, and their eyes adjust, and the scales start to fall off, and the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that's found in the face of Christ Jesus starts to shine in their hearts, when that happens, to God be the glory. We're but jars of clay holding a tremendous treasure. It's our purpose to... It's our purpose to to show this big, God-designed plans in an earth-shattering way. May we take our role as God-glorifiers very seriously, for it is the chief purpose of his people and our foundational why. Don't forget that this community at its core is not about you. It's not about being together or sharing together or learning together or growing together or enduring together. Despite how wonderful these things are, this is about bringing glory to God. Now, there may be some here this morning who see it, and if you see it, I beg you to do something about it. In the New Testament, when people saw the glory of God on display, it was called belief and faith, and they connected to that immediately. Their response was baptism, and then they attached themselves to this God-glorifying directive. They changed, and they lived in community. It changed everything about who they were and the way that they lived and the things that they spoke. If that's you this morning, I pray that you won't put it off. 2,000 years later, we have the same opportunities available, and we stand ready to baptize you. Perhaps you're interested, but you're not yet convinced. Well, we are God glorifiers, and we will help shine the light and show you what we know to be true. Or perhaps you have seen it, but you've realized today that you've drifted, and you've slowly turned away, and you're in danger of hardening. Your eyes have been darkened and you've gone inside and you've start, stopped looking at the glorious realities around you. Well, I'm telling you, we as a people stand here ready to grab your hand and pull you back outside and show you the glory of God that you once knew. Whatever your need might be, the invitation is open. Come forward as we stand and sing.